0: Hi, it's Monday and uh because I've been this war with the Ukraine is <clears throat> as you see catching my attention and it so happens that I undertook to do two um history podcasts as opposed to the Parsha and everything, uh, for two sponsors. So I'm gonna animate a little bit again today on uh, the subject of the uh the Russians, the Jews, the Poles, and the Ukrainians and all the screwed up business in Eastern Europe, um, simply in the context of Uman, because <clears throat> that's what I see as a lot people are, are, are thinking about or whatever, it came to my attention. So the long and the short of it is, this uh, is one of two podcasts being sponsored by uh, Mayor Jacobson, thanks very much, and uh, and by Michael Rennert, who, is that the one, I guess, you want to call me up in Florida, I suppose, in uh, and, and connection with that Safer Torah. Uh, so is this is one of two that they're doing. And again, it's, it's, it's supposed to be in connection with some history business. And so, first of all, thank you. And second of all, without any further ado, let me tell you what I was thinking about. It just came to my mind. Uh, just something that came to my mind. Uh, as I said, I think most people are familiar... With before all this stuff hit in the newspapers, with the Ukraine to whatever degree, I mean the type of people listen to this podcast, I would say, uh, with uh, Uman, probably many of you have been there, because Nachum Breslover died, at, was buried in Uman, and uh, it's in the news now with the fighting and all this stuff. And even bef- excuse me, before that, as we know, Uman is like a phenomenon, Uman phenomenon, um, in our lifetime particularly ever since the fall of communism and the opening of these countries. I told you, Ukraine is kind of like a liberal country last 30 years, as far as Jews are concerned. <clears throat> and the Uman business took off. And so you have tens of thousands of people over there. Uh, but it is weird that people leave Eretz Yisrael and fly to Uman, to Ukraine. Um, although, uh, there are a lot of Yiddish Kite projects have been building up in the Ukraine in the last 30 years. I mean, that is a fact. Eastern Europe also. Somebody one day will write the book about all this. What's going on in Russia and in Ukraine, those places, Yiddishkeit wise. <clears throat> I mean, opening up schools and things like that. Kolos, whatever. <clears throat> now, it's very famous that Bratislav is near Brezlov is near Uman, and Nachim Breslav would say he wants to uh, be buried there. Why does he want to be buried there? Because they have the Kadoshan. Most people think, I believe, maybe I'm wrong, that. When you go to Uman, so they have the people from Kmelnitsky, Tachvetat. I think as everybody is familiar, more or less. And I mentioned yesterday Derek Hagov The Jews were living in what we call the Kingdom of Poland in the old days. Or if you want to be exact, the, the Kingdom of Poland slash Lithuania. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth Szczeskosz which which was around in the 1500s, 1600s and 1700s. That was the golden age of the Jews in Poland. <coughs> and what it amounted to, as far as we're concerned, is that the Poles were the bosses and the Ukrainians were like the slaves, you know, the exploited. And the Jews, because they need Parnasov, often worked on behalf of the Polish guys at the landlords, doing all the bad stuff to the Ukrainians. I mean, that's what it boiled down to. Now, the result is that there was a big uprising in the Ukrainians. They killed a belt of Jews and Poles. From the Ukrainian perspective, Ada said, these guys are heroes. From the jewish perspective they're villains uh we called exeris and so forth and they did horrible things to the people who fell on their hands delta we were right to do it that's what i mean when i say we go to eastern europe abandon all pretense of uh what's the right word objective everything is subjective it's in a way that's we're not so used to in this country um although maybe i should change my mind now we're in the coup of trump and and hillary and biden everything's very subjective now also but anyway, that's what it is. Now, specifically, I don't think most people are aware that what happened with Chmielnitsky and Xeris was not unique. Every once in a while, there broke out a kind of Zach like that, and a lot of Jews got killed. The, right? So in other words, it wasn't only in 1648 and 1649, although that was a terrible business, but it happened other times as well. And As far as we're concerned, it was a famous case, or a terrible case, where it happened in Uman 100 years later, actually 120 years later. Kamelnitsky was uh, 1648, and the other one was 1768, so it's literally 120 years later. But it's the same business, except that it's due to screwball politics of the 18th century. The country was called the Kingdom of Poland, or Poland-Lithuania. Uh once upon a time, it was powerful. But then it got unpowerful because of the extreme selfishness of the nobles, the high nobles, the magnates, as they called them, who owned a tremendous amount of karka. And, I mean, really, some of these guys owned huge territories and land. And the Jews, along with everybody else, were owned by these guys. You understand? The Jews were owned by these Polish high noble landlords that had a positive side to it and had a negative side to it. But, I mean, they could kill them if they wanted to. The only thing is the Polish landlords were famous for being, most of the time, intelligent stewards of their own economic interests. And the guy said, Why should I kill a perfectly good Jew? It could make me money. <laughs> you like that. You Why would I waste a good Jew? And so, Lema said, the Jews, would boiled down pretty much to a freedom. Because the idea was go build a business and that's why, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, in the sixteenth, seventeen hundreds, fifteen, 16, 1700s, when it was in the era of the Kingdom of Poland, but remember Poland included Ukraine and other and Belarus and place like that. It's the Kingdom of Poland, it's not the country of Poland today. It's a thing that existed once and no longer existed. So it had a belt of Jews, the largest Jewish community by far, and the whole country was one gigantic flea market. You know, everybody's handling all the time everywhere. That it sounds like I'm saying something funny. And it is kind of funny, but it was true. So if I lived in my house, you know, I'd be I'd be going to show and a guy would come over to me and say, Listen, I got a bunch of watches to sell you, you know? I say, Well, what's your price? This and this new, maybe I can sell it. Meanwhile, I might say to him, Look, I'll tell you what, I got five extra copies of this art scroll book, you know, let's let's hawk. Let's swap. And by the time it's over I made a deal, he made a deal. And that's just shacharist, you know. By Menachah time, we could do it again, something else. And this guy could bring in wax, and I could bring in oil, and this guy bring this, and a cousin brings that. And there were shoals, mikvahs, the Jewish street, the non Jewish street, the whole place was handling, hawking like crazy. And from a strictly Milton Friedman economic point of view, capitalist point of view, it worked. You understand? And the Polish nobleman got his money off the top. You know, he gave a certain amount of tax to the business. And and what it meant, Lomaisa, was people actually lived okay, because whenever everybody's economically active, and whatever you want can be produced within a week or two, like by the Amazon of the 18th century. You know, and that's how life was lived until the Russians came and screwed it all up. Now, in that kind of world, the Polish landlord, the noblemen, they were the big shots. The Ukrainians were the the the, the grunts. And the Jews were in the middle, somehow or other. So you see what I'm talking about? Even after Khmelnytsky and all that, what he, too do, was his part of Ukraine, which was the extreme east, they killed out and kicked out the Jews. But the parts that he didn't conquer, so was the old system. And every once in a while there'd be an uprising. Now Poland, uh, the nobles, the high nobles, we're always sure to make sure that the kings of Poland will be weak so they would not be able to um, interfere with the privileges of the nobles. The history of Europe in general is the centralization of power by what you call a king. So, uh, And that's the beginning of a country. So if the king of France gets more and more power and the nobles have less and less power, that's good because eventually it's going to mean there's this one set of laws and one guy in charge and one this and one that and one army and one police force and little by little the nobles will be, you know, not political actors. I'm not sure if i make myself clear but this is basic to the creation of the modern western state. Okay, you want just one person in charge or one group in charge and when it gets to a certain point, you can replace the king with a republic if you want or whatever you want. There's one group in there, that's what we call a civilized state. Okay? There is an army, but there's only one. There is a police force, there's only one. There is a court system, but there's only one. Oh, if you have two or three armies running around, you see, then you're in real trouble. Two or three police forces. Then you're like Lebanon, Somaliland, one of these crazy countries, where there's a chaos. You understand? That'd be like a chaos. Now, um, here's the thing. The weakening of the Polish state because the nobles wouldn't allow the king to get too strong and establish a big army and a central treasury, all the rest of it meant that you had like a big, rich uh, cow with nothing to defend it. And so Russia moved in, very sneaky, in the 1700s. I'm not going to give you the whole story, but little by little, they were able to control what's going on in Poland. So Poland was its own country, but the Russians are next door, And very often the Russian army just comes in like Putin wants to do and just tells the Poles who should be their government. So it's what's happening now today in the Russian-Ukrainian war in which what Putin seems to want, right, is either the annexation of Ukraine or at least the that uh, the Russians should say who, who the president or the head of Ukraine should be. So it'll be basically like a certain puppet. Get it? Um... That's their style. Now, they did that to protect Russia. From the Russian point of view, I told you, it's all subjective to protect their, their their Western border. You understand? Know, that way, the foreigners stay far away, a potentially dangerous <coughs> army. The Poles, without going through all the details, were bribed and this, that, and the other. They went along with it for a while. And so, if you ask the question, who were the kings of Poland? In the 1700s, uh, the answer is Augustus I, Augustus II, and then Stanislaus I. All three were really, 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 really put in by Russia. Get it? as the Russians said, this is the one we want. And the Polish nobles, who were the electors, just went along with it. And they wanted those three guys because they will all be very weak. And that means that Russia was playing Poland off To stay weak. I repeat, this is more or less the way Putin would like to operate today. Maybe there will be a country called Belarus, but he'll say who's in charge of Belarus. And the government there will be rather weak and sort of like secretly Meshubba to Russia. And same thing for uh, Ukraine and all that. That's good for the point of this war that's going on. Now, to take you back to our story, uh, and remember that time it was the largest Jewish community in the world in Poland. There were zero Jews in Russia. That's the halachas of Russia forever that no Jew was ever allowed into Russia proper. Now, what happened was that the Russians used, exerted their control more and more, and when they said they want the Polish parliament to pass a law, they usually did. It got to a point that the Poles couldn't take it anymore, or at least some of them. So, the Russians made sure that this guy, King Stanislaus, was elected king of Poland. He had been the boyfriend of the Empress Catherine the Great, the Russian Empress. And the Polish people, the the, the nobles, didn't like the fact that he looked like a kiss-up operation to Russia. And then the Russians said they want to give a vote, equal rights, even to Christians who are not Catholic. They have to understand Poland is a Catholic country baby. A Catholic country. Uh, super duper. Mind you, they didn't hurt the Jews. I'm talking about the Kingdom of Poland. The nobles were almost all of them, for the most part, big Catholics. And they let the Jews, you know, the, the Jews were okay. You understand? So it's not like another Catholic country in Europe where they used to torture and persecute the Jews. You know, in Italy and Austria and all this. So Poland wasn't like that. But nevertheless, from the Christian point of view, is a Catholic country. But the Russians are not Catholic, they're what you call Russian Orthodox. And they wanted to pass a law, they tried to push the Polish parliament. In fact, they did push them to pass a law saying that it's the same thing whether you're Catholic or even Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. The Stark Catholics went crazy and they formed like a certain confederation to fight this. It's called Confederation of Bar. Uh mainly in Eastern Poland which was very, or what you and I call the Ukraine, and uh, which was, a lot of Jews were there. Uh, skipping over a lot of details, this really ticked off the Ukrainians. And by the time the story's over, a new Khmelnytsky movement started up. That's exactly what happened. They called them the Haidamaks. There's another name for, you know, Kazakh uh, bands. And they mom wanted to do what it was before, which is, let's get freedom from the Polacks, kill out the Polish, kill the Jews who were working for the Polish. And anyway, the Jews are dreck anyway. They used to catch a, they used to hang on a tree. Hang. A Polack, a Jew, and a dog. And the idea was all three are the same junk. This is, this is the mentality. And they, Mamish went back to the old ways of the Ukrainians, which is torture and burning and slicing and dicing and this and that and the other. This is as late as 1768. In other words, what I'm talking about is happening in the time of George Washington, or to be exact, seven or eight years before the American Revolution. But we're talking about what's happening in Ukraine, which is part of the thing of Poland. And so a whole big movement started, and all these guys joined it, these Ukrainians, and they went around killing every Polish and every Jew and Catholic to take a fight. When I say kill them, like they did in 1648 burn them roast them cut them in half saw their heads off i don't want to get you sick with the the pregnant women i'm not gonna get you sick with all that the point is this is exactly happening i want to listen very closely this is exactly happening in the area of Hasidic, Hasidism. the this is this is the part of poland where the Hasidic movement had started uh because to be perfectly honest Listen closely to this. Hasidism is a Ukrainian phenomenon. It is not a Polish phenomenon. In other words, the Baal and all the others, the Magda, the and so forth, they all lived and operated in the Ukraine. It's true the Ukraine was part of the Kingdom of Poland, so if you want to do that way you can say it's all Polish, but I think you understand what I mean. The Polish was not in the Ukraine part. was more to the West than the Polish part. And in the lifetime of the Balshemtov, I don't think the Hasidic movement really penetrated there, but rather it was in the area of what the eastern part of the Polish, which is the Ukraine. That's just interesting, okay? But the Balshemtov died in 1760, so this is eight years after his death, and it's the time of the Magen okay? And what happened was that all of a sudden these high showed up, having formed to fight against what they saw, the Polish oppressors. Anyway, the whole country is going to hell because you have the Confederation of Bar fighting against the king who's kissing up to the Russians. See, it's a you know, who who are trying to get, who undermine Poland by getting the Polish parliament to pass a law giving equal rights to people who are not Catholics, therefore they'll be pro-Russian. You know, that you, you see what I'm saying? And so army was fighting army and this and that. It was a time of, of great tension and chaos and so these these ukrainian guys made their move and they killed the Velta people okay now what happened? specifically they call this the kalifshina you know the in 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 uh in ukrainian history the kalifshina, kalifshina. uh anyhow um so what happened was that the jews are like <laughs> starting to freak out and they ran away to the fortified town. That's what they did in 1648. In other words, there's two ways of escaping from the Cossacks, as we would say today. One is to flee the country. And if you were lucky enough to do that, just keep running, 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 running. Maybe you'll stay just ahead of them. And they never will get to you. what you did, to where you are. That is one way. The other way is to go to the local fortified place. Because the Poles had castles and forts and junk like that. And, and if the Poles are against the uh Ukrainians over here, like they were back in Khmelnytsky's time. And there were a lot of fortresses which held out against the Cossacks who didn't have heavy artillery and junk like that. And so the Jews in this area ran away to a town, a Polish town. In other words, it's a city that is Polish and Ukrainian in it, but the but the soldiers and the the garrison and the, so forth is Polish, and they're under the, the, the rule of the Polish landlords. And so uh, the Jews flooded in there along with the Catholics, and that, my friends, was the town of Uman, okay? So they figured maybe they'll be able to hold out here until help comes or something like that. They didn't know what to do. They scared out of their minds, uh, because these guys are crazy, and they'll, they'll torture them all to death. So the problem is, as happened in sixteen forty eight, that you don't know who to trust. The Polish nobles had their own private armies. A lot of times, they were mercenaries. The mercenaries included a lot of Ukrainians. Now that it's a war between Poles and Ukrainians, can you trust your own troops? Because if the Ukrainians maybe will join the other side, that is what happened. In Uman. Okay. So there were lots of Jews. As I understand it. They're probably. Between, uh, ten, around 10,000 Jews. Something like that. Some will say more. It says Something in that area. 5, 8, 10,000 Jews. Men, women, children. And they hold up in this uh, fortress. Which had cannon and, and battle walls. And all this kind of junk. And the Polish guy in charge. Uh, wasn't the smartest guy. That ever walked down the road. Unfortunately, and the problem is that the Poles, the Jews looked to the Poles for protection and in their way, the Poles were protecting them because the Jews in their side, but the Poles really didn't like them either. So you'd have to be a very wise Polish guy to realize the necessity of protecting the Jews. Usually, you know, the, the great and powerful nobles were, were smart enough to understand that. So, for example, in 1648, the main hero for the Jews was the Polish landlord, the great prince, uh, Jeremy Vishnevetsky, who was a huge landowner, and he was smart enough to realize the Jews are my asset. Therefore, he actually protected them with his army. Uh, and he's mentioned, by the way, that way, in the Seferi of Mitzula, which is the classic description of 1648, 1649. But we do not have the equivalent of Yavain Mitzul in that way, for the massacres of 1768. Because they never reached that proportion. They were kind of localized, as we shall see. Although, if you were a Jew living in the wrong place in the wrong time, to Hainu Uman, it didn't matter. So, one of the things that happens is, they would have like a Polish commander of a fortress, and he see all these Cossacks coming, and he said, holy, whatever, we're, <laughs> we're up the creek. But then, the Cossacks or whoever would say, look here, give us over the Jews, let's make a deal. Right? We'll kill the Jews, leave you alone. Uh, So then, it's very interesting. Uh, What should I do? Now, if the guy was really smart, he'd say, you can't trust the Ukrainians. You know what I mean? Because ultimately, they want to get you. You can't trust these guys, so why would you even take a chance? But, on the other hand, You look out there, imagine a movie, and you're in the fort. You're surrounded by all these crazy Cossacks and they're all getting ready to do who knows what. The men, the women, and the children. And you're scared out of your mind, and you're changing your pants every ten minutes. And, you really? And then, so you're grasping at straws, you see? And you figure, listen, maybe if we sell out the Jews, maybe it'll work, that we'll be left alone. And so that's what he did. Now it's a little complicated because he sent out his soldiers to fight off the enemy, but his soldiers joined the enemy. That's what happened. I don't want to go through all the details. If you're really interested, you can you can look it up. It's, uh, uh, everything I'm saying is is kind of a dover you doer, except probably um, by anybody who knows anything about Jewish history. I mean, I know you don't know, but I'm you know, I'm, in other words, it's not obscure what I'm talking about. No little detail. That's Goofy DeVart today. Uh, But this is a famous, sad episode in Jewish history. Now, what happened, therefore, is the soldiers joined the enemy, and so the Ukrainians busted into uh, Uman, and they made a big massacre. I think they they killed tens of thousands of people. Uh, Partly because they... I mean, first of all, let me put it this way. This uh, whole scene is very well known in Ukrainian history. The number one poet in the Ukraine, who's very, very well known, just, you never heard of him, is Taras Shevchenko. He's a very famous poet. He's like the founder of the Ukrainian literature and all this. Uh, Who was persecuted by the Russians in the 19th century for trying to cultivate the Ukrainian language. You see, there's all that fight that's going on. And he was a grandson of the killers. (laughs) You get it? And he has an epic poem. I forced forced myself to read it once. (laughs) But once is enough you know, called Heidemax where he talks about the massacres of um, of the Ukraine, you know, of the of the killing of the Poles and the Jews. And he said, boy, the blood was like water. And he said, listen, let's be honest. Everybody came in there, they got like seriously drunk, because that's what they do. They bust into town, they got all the wine, and once they're drunk, they went even fight and they tortured to death, and this, and that, and the other. And for Jews, it was hard. Here, let me, there's a famous description over here. In what's his name in, in the golden oldie? Um, Dubno. Time of Dubno. Listen to this. It's all happening in June of 68. You listening? During the first day, the city was defended by the Polish noblemen and the Jews who worked shoulder to shoulder on the city wall, fighting off the besiegers with cannon and rifles. So, I told you, they had a fort, they had guns, they had cannon, all that stuff, but not all the Poles were genuinely resolved to defend the city. Many of them thought of saving their lives. The governor Mladnovic, he's the Polak, he himself conducted peace negotiations with the Heidemats and was reconciled by their promises that they would not lay hands on the Polish nobles, but would be satisfied with making short work of the Jews. And he fell for it. When the Heidemachs, which is the bad guys, headed by the two generals, penetrated into the town, they threw themselves in accordance with their promise, on the Jews. So just can you imagine this? This is like a, a dish above. The Jews were crazed with terror and were running to and fro in the streets. This is Uman. They were murdered in beast-like fashion, being trampled under the hoofs of the horses. The, the perpetrators here are the Ukrainians, my friends. That's my point. They were per- murdered in beast-like fashion, being trampled under the hoofs of the horses, or hurled down from the roofs of the houses, while the children, Jewish children, were impaled on bayonets. So, you know I mean? You throw the kid up in the air and catch him on a bayonet. And the women were all raped. A crowd of Jews to the number of 3,000 <coughs> sought refuge behind the walls of the great synagogue. So just imagine a shoal. These are the old fortress shoals of yesteryear. Imagine a shoal with, of course, the shoal courtyard and everything goes along with it. Uh, they could hold 3,000 people as a refuge. It was built for that, among other reasons. This, the Shoals used to have um, ammo and guns and things like this, precisely for occasions like this. Um, that's why you have those famous Shilas. Uh, when it comes to Simcha's turf, you can use gunpowder for the for the I'm sure Do you remember that? You know, look it up in Zevin. And you know, what the heck is gunpowder doing with our covers? It was all around in the Shoals, because they all had, an, they had ammo dumps there, besides a base metric, right? See so imagine a mikveh, ammo dump, and all the rest of it. When the Haidamachs approached the sacred edifice, the synagogue, several Jews, maddened with fury, threw themselves with daggers and knives on the front ranks of the enemy and killed some of them. So this is a movie. This is a movie. Here are a few guys, we called the JDL, and they said, we're going to take some of these guys down with us. And they jumped the Cossacks and killed some. The remaining Jews did nothing but pray to the Lord for salvation. To finish with the Jews quickly, the Heidemachs placed a cannon at the entrance of the synagogue. I'll say it again. This is a movie, but unfortunately it's a sad movie. They placed a cannon at the entrance of the synagogue. They blew apart the doors and then they rushed inside and they turned the house of prayer into a slaughterhouse. Hundreds of dead bodies were soon swimming in pools of blood. And then they turned on the poles. So this is the group that Nachman Breslover said, I want to be buried a monk. This is the group, if you go to uh, Uman today, so yeah, it's the tomb of Nachman Breslover. no question about it, but it's also, this this is the the guys that fell. In other words, we would call it a mini Tachvatat, okay? Because what happened was that um, within a short time, the Russian army, and this is so interesting to me, came in and wiped these guys out. Why would the Russians do that? It's not because the Russians like the Jews. It's Catherine the Great. She didn't want the Ukrainians to get too strong. You get it? Once they wipe out the Jews and wipe out the Poles, maybe they'll build themselves up into a big entity and maybe they'll be able to resist Russia. So she came in and for her own purposes wiped out these guys because they're anti-Ukrainian. So look at the story I just told you. It's a mishmash between... The Poles, the Jews, Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews, the Ukrainians, the Russians—you need a scorecard. You understand? From our perspective, now, by the way, the 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 the, the Kazakh generals Lesnik and uh, what's the other like, guy Gunta, these are famous names. They're like heroes in um, in Ukraine. Leshitah by us, they're like little mini Hitlers because. They wanted to purge the country and ethnic cleansing. Uh, This kind of violence is endemic in Ukraine, although, to be perfectly honest, they haven't displayed this since 1990. In the modern Ukraine, you know, as far as I can tell, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that much, but as far as I can tell, they are trying to move past this, okay, so I'm not making an anti-Ukrainian thing, but on the other hand, the history is the history; you can't deny it, okay? And th- and these guys are like heroic uh, by them in in many ways. <clears throat> this is the same Ukraine, so they were suppressed by the Russians, which is funny. When the Ru- the Russians took them over, within a few years, 1772, four years later, casting the Great annexed all this stuff. And by the time she had finished, she annexed all uh, Ukraine and Poland, almost all. of it. some of it was in Austria-Hungary, but the ninety-some percent was in in uh, Russian hands, and this remained that way until the First World War. Like I told you the other day, and the Ukrainians tried to get out of it and never succeeded, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> Let me say this: in the twenties, and the listen in the twenties and the thirties, um, as I just said. 1920s, 1930s, most of Ukraine was in the Soviet hands, USSR. But a chalik was in what we call today Poland. In fact, that small chalik was in Czechoslovakia. Those were the lucky ones. they called Ruthenia, Potka, Potka Rus. Those guys actually is a certain type of Ukrainian. They were the, well, when I say the lucky ones, the Jews there were the lucky ones. That's Munkach, get it? The Munkach it was lucky enough that in the 1920s and 30s, the Munkacharov died in 37. Uh, they were in a democratic country that was actually friendly to the Jews. So that's why you look at the uh, movie online of the Kasina and all that, and you see everything's fine, okay? But Rove of the part was in Poland. Meaning Rove of the part that was not Soviet was in Poland. And in Poland, you had therefore areas were partly Polish and partly Ukrainian. I just described to you how the Ukrainians massacred the Poles in 1768 and the Jews. Well, guess what? In World War II, isn't that something? While all these different holocausts were going on. Obviously, the Jewish holocaust, that goes without saying. But there were other holocausts, little ones, happening at the same time. One of them was, the Ukrainians repeated the massacres of the Poles. They burned people to death, they killed them, they pulled them apart, stuff like that. The Poles made a movie a couple years ago. I must have mentioned, I think it's called Revenge, I believe. I think that's the name of it. Um, If not, you can look it up, if you're really interested. It's a drama, it's a movie movie. I'm always interested in history movies, get it? Especially, you're going to think I'm weird. uh, But I'm interested in the foreign language history movies. Because I like to see how their culture portrays all this stuff. And uh, from a historian perspective. And there's a movie, really, two, three, four years ago. Uh, I think it's called Revenge. And, you know, it's a story about a a family. One one marries a Ukrainian, one marries a Pole. And during during the middle of the Second World War, aside from killing the Jews, I remember they showed some of that. But aside from that, they showed at one point, Ukrainians went wild, and they like burned and killed all the Poles, including children. Now, it's a movie. It's not real. It's actors. You know, but but it's pretty gross. And it really did happen. And I remember once seeing, in some museum or something like that, the Poles had some kind of represent. It was like a Walt Disney type presentation of how they tore the children apart or something like that. That's what they call Walt Disney in Eastern Europe. But, you know, that's what they had. And it's a bloody business, Okay. So in other words, those who say that we are exaggerating when we say the Ukrainians did this not to the Yidden in 1648, and in 1768, the answer is, go look at 1943. And it's not even what they did to Jews, look what they did to guy. The polls will show you. So that shows you what a, a bloody shtick the whole area is. That's why, you know, I do understand, I do and I'm looking today in the Yeshiva world and all this. I see that there are uh, from Jews lining up to join the uh, a few to Ukrainian army, and it's a different Ukraine. It, it is a different Ukraine. It just feels very strange to me. You understand? I'm just telling you what I think. It feels very strange to me. I get it because this iteration of the Ukraine is different, and they're liberal, and, and they are. And uh, you know, I'm not going by the fact that the president is Jewish. He's a very assimilated Jew. He married a guy. He ain't he never had anything to do with Jewish stuff. But okay, you know, he didn't ask me my permission. Uh, but it's it is a bloody uh, part of the world, and it goes to show you, if you're Jewish, you know, you always got to keep a scorecard. Right now, it seems like the Ukrainians are the good guys, the Russians are the bad guys. If you were living in in Uman, you were praying for the Russian army to come in and save you back in 1768 on another time you might be praying for the ukrainian army to save it the russians so as i mentioned the other day in one of my talks uh if, if from the yiddish point of view you have to think and with this i'll conclude but the Yiddish point of view you have to think like lord palmerston the famous british prime minister foreign minister who said england has no permanent enemies and england has no permanent friends england has only permanent interests that's a very interesting concept if you apply it um to the uh to the Jewish situation um anyway that's what Uman is all about and I just thought I would like I said this is all on my mind and I'm following the story the way everybody else is uh it's very interesting I'm looking now but I don't want to get side talking to just the uh, gossip that I see that they're that the ukrainians are fighting the Chechens. Who've been sent apparently to uh, kill and torture uh, um, Zelensky, and they're putting pig fat on the bullets or something like that. Because in that way, if the Muslim gets killed by the, by, the, by the pig fat, he can't go to heaven. So, knows you want to play dirty, we'll play dirty too. It's it's a part of the world <coughs> that, in my opinion, is better not to live in. Uh, but anyway, once again, I want to thank the two sponsors today. This is one, and next week I hope we'll do the other one. Uh, Mayor and, uh, and Michal. And with that, I wish you all a, a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydovidkatz.com.